singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better by liking this video, writing a review on iTunes, leaving a comment on the blog, or simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Godfrey Reggio. Godfrey is a film director perhaps best known for his Catsy trilogy. I met Godfrey recently at the Toronto International Film Festival, where I was fortunate to see the premiere of his latest film called Visitors. And while I can't promise that you would all like it, I will go ahead and claim that it would be a movie experience like no other, and therefore, in my opinion, you owe it to yourself to go and experience it. <laughs> so that was kind of my endorsement for your movie, Godfrey. I don't know what you're Thank going you. to say about that. But, Thank you. Uh, it's another way of saying welcome to Singularity One-on-One. I appreciate you being with us. Happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Fantastic. So, uh, Godfrey, if you were to introduce yourself in your own words, how would you do it? Um, very good question. I don't think about that often. Um, I guess I would consider myself a very fortunate person. Um, I introduced myself as someone who had the opportunity to live in the Middle Ages uh, <laughs> culturally and um, resurfaced in the 20th century. Um, when I was 13 years old, I left the world and joined a religious community of men. And that was literally culturally like living in the Middle Ages. So I left the Dolce Vita of my hometown, New Orleans, and joined this self-sufficient community of um, 140 monks. We did everything from make our own food, to make our own clothes, to take care of our sick, to bury our dead. So it was a, let's say, a most unusual experience for someone growing up in the mid-20th century in the United States. So I would have to say that I'm, uh, if I would introduce myself, I would introduce myself as a refugee from another period. Wow. That's, that's a very unique introduction and very unique experience. Let me ask you, how is it that you joined that uh, religious order? Was it by your own free will or was it uh, because your parents or somebody else uh, decided that you should do that? Uh, it was by my own volition. Uh, it was not the uh, desire of my parents that I do that, considering me a very worldly person. They thought this would not be a good mix for me. But let me say this, that like all adolescents, we all determine who we want to be by the adults that we admire the most. When I was in Mata Della Rosa, a Catholic school in New Orleans, um, in the seventh and eighth grades, I had the opportunity to be taught by Christian brothers, men that were alive with joy, that didn't seem to be concerned so much about themselves or how they looked, who were generous, who had uh, the energy of giving, um, who were like alive. Um, it was a, you know, a, uh, let's say a liminal experience for me. It put me on the threshold of something more meaningful than what I was going through at that age in New Orleans, which was a very, let's say, fast life. I was on speed and rush hour, outrunning my future, as it were. Uh -huh. So wanting to be like them, like all adolescents, wanting to be like the people you admire, that's how we determine who we are in many cases, either that or, or some art that one wants to pursue, that, uh, that led me into the brothers. Uh -huh. to be like them. Little did I know what I was getting into. Um, when I got there, uh, I could only say that uh, the experience initially was so visceral that it would make the Marine Corps look like the Boy Scouts. Wow. It was a very intense, rigorous, and uh, demanding routine. 
that you would have to go through as a 13 and 14 year old as well. Does that mean you had some regrets at that time? No, I was shocked. Um, I'd never gone through anything quite so rigorous, so demanding, so intentional, so purposeful, so demanding of uh, detail. And um, that was, uh, you know, like um, something never experienced before gives you the opportunity to respond in a way that you've never responded before. So I took the leap and the net appeared. Um, I went for it. Uh, you become what you do every day. The main thing being in a religious community is the routine, the regularity of every day, every hour, knowing what's going down, that is what you do. You do it with the intention that's different, more intense every day, but that's that routine. So that, that puts you in a completely different space. Mm -hmm. And how long did you spend there and eventually why did you not decide to spend the rest of your life in that same community? I did intend to spend the rest of my life in that community. In fact, uh, as a brother, you take temporary and then final vows if they allow you in. So I was a lifer. I took vinyl vows at the age of 25. And at the age of 28, after being in for 14 years, I was basically asked to leave my order. The reasons for that are, I'll try to give it to you as brief as possible, is that at that time, as it were, my Che Guevara was a guy called Giovanni Roncalli, who is, was the Pope at the time, John Twenty-Third. Uh, to me, he was a hero. He said, question everything except nothing, even the structure of the church. For a young, zealous monk like myself and others in the church, we took him because we could. I was in a pontifical order. The Pope was the head of my order. I took his word as a marching order. And that got me and many of my colleagues in trouble. In my case, all brothers take a vow besides poverty, chastity, and obedience, a specific vow to the order that they're in. The order that I was in, I took the vow to teach the poor gratuitously. However, there were very, very few poor kids in the schools that I taught, in the school that I taught in. And I started to look around the community and realize that, you know, 40% of this, of this place I live in, northern New Mexico, is poverty-stricken. And these kids are basically not in the schools. Where are they? They're in gangs. So I started a gang project, drove my superiors a little nuts, <laughs> but finally... Uh, they relented and let me work with them as well as teach and be a prefect in a boarding school. So I had a lot of stuff going on at that time. And it led me to be a voice for other brothers that wished to teach the poor gratuitously. It got me in trouble with authority. And they suggested that I either leave or go to Rome and work in the archives or go to what was at that time St. Michael's College in Santa Fe and teach sociology. So I decided it would be best to leave, given that they felt it would be so. They offered me my dispensation. And at the age of 28, I entered the world. Do you think that was just? Yes, I think it was. Uh, I mean, I don't look at it in terms of justice or injustice. I look at it more in terms of fate or destiny. I look at it more in terms of um, the contrarinesses of life that come about. Uh, life is not, the harmony of life comes from its difference. I was in a very dramatic and dynamic uh, um, period in the Catholic Church where things were being lifted upside down, as it were. And uh, so it would be expected that others wouldn't want to go along with that, would be, um, let's say, uh, threatened by the changes that would have to occur to be more in line with something more fundamental, mm -hmm. more um, more in terms of giving, more in terms of less about ourselves, more about the apostolate that we're founded for. Now, you can see as a young monk, one could get very zealous about that, which I was. So I became vocal about it as well and became a thorn in the side of authority. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And is that sort of the mission or the, the sort of the guiding principle that you have adopted for the rest of your life ever since then? Well, let me put it this way. If I forget it, it remembers me. <laughs> We become, I'm watermarked. I grew up in a traditional Catholic family in New Orleans, a Catholic city. Um, I went to a Catholic school, Mata Della Rosa, which means mother of sorrows. I entered a religious community, lived in the Middle Ages. It, my proclivities by virtue of presence, I'm watermarked. And so I could say, I'm not a Catholic, but a Catholic is me. This is who I am. So I have to accept that as, uh, as the place that I started. And I do so with great, um, I would say, appreciation And at the end of the day. What do I mean by that? That the, by joining the brothers, by joining and like being in the church is being in an exoteric form of uh, religion. Being in a religious order is the esoteric form. It's much more concentrated, intense. The very essence of the religious community is the pursuit, not the attainment, but the pursuit of perfection. So it, it makes a big demand on those that wish to go in. That's where all these vows are. You take them for life, etc. So those things influenced me. They had an impact on me. I learned as a young brother from in the novitiate where you undergo your first formation as a religious member of a religious community that if you wanted to see your familiar for the first time, if you wanted to see that which was most normal in front of you, that which is there all the time, which is usually hidden in plain sight because of its presence, because of its familiarity, that one would have to stare at it until it looked extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And um, I've carried that through the films that I've worked on. Um, as a young monk, the focus of my intellectual attention was the love of the word. Um, I've come to feel that the word is in now a great, a vast state of humiliation, that the word no longer describes the world in which we live. That's a conundrum for me because we see the world through language. This is how we, and the beauty of it is that we all have different languages. The tragedy of it is that we're losing our languages. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were arguably 30, 35,000 languages and principal dialects on the planet. Today, we have or approaching either a little before or a little after 4,000 languages and principal dialects. Then we had 1.7 billion people. Now we have 7 billion people. There's a inverse relationship taking place. Language is disappearing. So I wanted, not for lack of love of the language, but the work that I do is not a traditional narrative form. It's a speechless narration. It's a meta-language, a poetic language, not of word, but it's pictorial. It's, um, it's non-mental. It's, it, it embraces Goethe's idea about poetry that in the measure that it's least accessible to your intellect, in that measure it's most efficacious. It's not logical. It's not linear. It's, um, it has a form not to inform your intellect or where you can follow a story, but to give you a feeling, to give you a sensation, an emotion, a perception. It's an aesthetic form of a meta-language to present the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. So that kind of addressed the issue of why and how you got interested in filmmaking. Um, when I was to bring the story back to the brothers, when I was working with street gangs in northern New Mexico, a Christian brother, uh, Brother Gonzalez, um, suggested that I see a film because of my work with gangs called Los Ovidados by Luis Bunuel, 
the young and the damned or for the, or the forgotten ones. It was a film he made in the very late 40s in Mexico City. It looked like the barrios of northern New Mexico, it, except for the faster Spanish. They spoke Spanish very fast here. There's like a Chicanismo or a Spanish from the 16th century that is spoken much slower. Uh, but the ambiance, the ethos, the, as it were, the, the feeling of the film was beyond entertainment, beyond um, what I had uh, seen as narrative. It was a spiritual experience. It touched me and it touched the uh, people in the gang that saw the film. They, many of them saw that many times because I bought a copy and used it as the equivalent of church for our group because it was so powerful as a medium. And that inspired me to think about cinema as a poetic medium to inflict people with a feeling about the world in which they live. Mm -hmm. And and I have to say that I've seen probably four or five of your films so far, and I can say that you've accomplished to do that for me personally at least twice. Uh, and so I'd like to move on talking about uh, your movies, but uh, thank you for sharing with us your background because Thanks. I think it is very important to sort of lay out the foundation if you will, uh, both uh, metaphysical and, and ethical foundation that each of, of us carries with themselves, because I think it, it helps people understand what you're all about and what your work is all about. And, and I think your case is a perfect example, actually. So let's talk a little bit about your movies. Uh, the first movie that, that you came up with, uh, I think it was in 1982, Kuyanis Katsi. Uh, became almost almost had like a cult following, and and for good or for bad, I think the images and and many of the sort of visual tools that you used instantly became adopted by popular culture in, in many ways, even even in commercials. I think. Uh, do you agree with that? And how does that make you feel if that's well, true? I, I don't I can't disagree or agree because I have nothing to do with it in the sense that I control that. I can say what I think happened. Um, when you do cinema that is based, again, not in text, but in texture, which is based in a visual form or a meta language, as I tried to explain earlier, then you're... We live in a world where our our spoken language is disappearing and the new hegemony or the new language is the language of image. You'll notice, at least in, a, in North America, that 20 years ago you could count on two hands a number of schools that taught cinema. Uh, today, everything from kindergarten to grade school, high school, community colleges, universities, libraries, associations all have some kind of moving image department because the, the um, as it were, the word is ubiquitous. That, excuse me, the image is ubiquitous. But what was your question? Tell me your question again. How the, do you feel about... Oh, yes, okay, I got the question. So, so in doing Koyanis Katsi, it was a pictorial composition event. It was something that one could feel rather than understand. It was to touch people rather than to enlighten them, okay? To give them through this artificial medium of, of cinema an opportunity to see another way of seeing their world. So the, there are all kinds of, when, once you're away from the control of the literary cinema, which means screenplay, which means narration, which means actor, story, and plot. Once you're out of that linear landscape, then what do you have to work with if it's pictorial? You have motor speeds, you, um, you have lenses, you have the movement or the stillness of the camera, you have color or lack of color etc. at Alia. You have special effects. So it's all about the veracity of the image. When that film came out, it gave very young people in advertising companies in, who are dealing in the visualization of life, as it were, 
a way, another way of looking at that which they see every day, but a way of seeing it in another way. It got adopted, picked up. The form got adopted by MTV mm-hmm. as a music and image form. It was all happening at the same time. Is it the chicken or the egg? I have no idea. It Am was- I happy about it? I'm not. Or let me put it this way. The intention of this film, as weird as this was going to sound, is to enter the vascular structure of the beast. Let me explain what I mean. The beast is that which uh, fulfills all of our technological desires. And this beast is the price we pay for the pursuit of those desires. Um, it's like the assumptions. This beast is about the assumptions we make for the sake of our behavior. And to enter, to make a film like anyone who makes art or makes a cinema or makes something for others, architecture, it's to commune with other people. So this was not to be shown to my friends or be in a gallery where very few people might see it. It was to enter into this vascular structure of the beast of of communications, international, global communications. And somehow it had the opportunity to do that. And its language got consumed, like everything that has value gets consumed by the beast. Yeah, and you said you're not particularly happy because that's the interesting tension that I see there. On the one hand, you wanted to enter into the system of the beast. On the other hand, you did do so, but I'm not sure you, you're you happy with the final effect, the final Well, result. it's not that I'm happy or not happy with it. It's, it's like I don't dwell on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing I can do to change what, what has or has not happened, obviously. And, but what I will say is that those images that you see appropriated are numbing. They numb the viewer. They give them, in a, um, in a subtext, as it were, the banality of ordinary daily living, the spectacle nature of it, how we're like, um, you know, we're like, it, it's not predicated for us, it's predicated for the spe- spectacle that we live under. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, that is present as well. Even it's consumed because of its, because of its, assumed spectacular nature because the object of that film was to look at the spectacular nature of the beast those things that are the things that we most celebrate rather than the obviousness of social injustice environmental devastation inequity viral forms etc at allium i hope to come back to the nature of the beast but let me see uh for me personally, I, I was amazed when I watched your movie because I've seen the the, the footage, and I grew up in that, if you, even if you will, a little bit of the MTV culture. So I've right. seen the sort of digested images that resulted out of your movie, and it was fascinating to see, to go to the spring, as, as it were, and to, to, to watch them at the source. That was the fascinating part for me. But let's share with our visitors who may not have seen the movie necessarily. What is Koyanis Katsi, the meaning of the word? Um, It's a compound word. It comes from Koyanis and Katsi. Let's start with the second part, Katsi, because it's called the Katsi Trilogy. All three films end in the compound of Katsi. Q-A-T-S-I, Katsi in Hopi means life. When it's joined with another word, it, that word predicates what kind of life it is. So in the case of Koyanis Katsi, it is life out of balance, crazy life, life in turmoil, um, a way of life that calls for another way of living. Uh, to me, this has a perspicacity, a clarity, an insight beyond the so-called wisdom of our civilized languages. This is a language of orality, an illiterate language, a language spoken, not written, a language that is passed on generation to generation, that has an insight beyond the cleverness 
of our measured view of reality called history. Um, so I found the word much more descriptive. If you were in, for example, a university setting and were studying ethnology, you would use the subjective categories of the professors to analyze indigenous peoples. So what I wanted to do was flip that equation. <laughs> I wanted to take the subjective categories of indigenous people and have that measure against the world in which we live, which to me has a wisdom beyond our literate form. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why that movie really went deep in me and, and really managed to connect with me emotionally somehow at a deep level. But let me ask you this. So you said the movie is not intending to address the apparent uh, poverty, inequalities, or uh, natural environmental degradation. So what do you mean when you say that we are out of balance? In what sense? Well, look, uh, that's a word that, that shows the equilibrium is gone. The balance I'm talking about comes not through homogenization, but through diversification. Um, the, the mantra, if you want, of the new world is united we stand. The mantra of the world, let's call it the old world, is divided we stand. One world is breathless, the other is full of breath. One world uh, has language, the other has data. Uh, I could go on and list the characteristics. I'm describing the new terra firma of technology, and I'm describing the old world of anima mundi, of a world that was indeed alive, possessed of soul and intelligence, okay? So what I'm looking at in terms of the imbalance is something that's hidden in plain sight, something that is so present to us, it is so ordinary and normal that we don't see it for the intensity that it is. And that I call technology. Technology from, from the point of view that I'm looking at it is an environment. It's a milieu. It has replaced the old world with a new world. It is the globalization of the planet. So technology from this point of view is not something that affects us. It doesn't, it's not about the effect on the environment, religion, politics, economics, war, etc. It's about that everything now exists in technology, that it is as ubiquitous as the air we breathe. It is the new, comprehensive, all-inclusive host of life. Without it, we die. It's, it, and its symbol, its quintessential um, mark, as it were, on the planet is the blue planet. That symbol that is taken by every religion, United Nations organization, NGOs, religious groups, uh, community organizations, radical groups, as the, new, as the new symbol. As a filmmaker, I look at a symbol like that, and where is the camera? It's off-planet. We are off-planet. That's why we can see the world that way. To me, it's the equivalent of the new swastika. It is, and it's hidden in plain sight. It is the new techno-fascistic image of, of the unity in which the world is held, and it creates that imbalance. The unity that I'm talking about is the unity of diversification. It would be boring to have one language, one weather pattern, one season, one animal. The beauty of life is its diversity, is that divided we stand. That's what's being eliminated. The diversity is being eliminated for the assumptions we make for the sake of our little behaviors. Um, it's the price we pay for the pursuit of this technological happiness 
that is the main event beyond anything in the newspapers. It's the price we pay to keep having this kind of food service that we have, this kind of heating that we have, this kind of mobility that we have, this kind of ability to buy commodities or to become a commodity, uh, this kind of ability to be entertained to death this kind of capacity to be unendingly connected to the orb of wireless technology. Um, all of these things are so normal, they're unperceivable any longer because of the forest for the tree. We're, we're so deep inside of it that it's unobservable to who we are. Mm -hmm. That's what Koyanis Katsi means by life out of balance, life in turmoil, um, crazy life, that's probably its best definition, and most maturely, a way of life that calls for another way of living. Mm -hmm. We, be we, we become true. what we do. Mm -hmm. There are so many there things so that many you said things there things that I don't even know don't which know one to grab first, but, but let me ask you this. Ask you this. What does all what of this say all about, this our, say civilization? about our civilization? Oh. Well, or humanity. I mean, that's such a big question. <laughs> the, let, let's start with civilization. The civilizational twins are war and religion. The history of our civilization has been the history of war. It is, it is the sanctioned aggression against others that is the power that, that governments, that civilizations, that now nation states have over all of their citizens. So it is the final arbitrator, it is the final decider of differences. And the differences on the planet are becoming extreme now because the resources that we live with are extreme. Let's say this, the next 1,000 Americans that are going to be born will double the consumption of the next 100,000 Nigerians that will be born. These are the kind, this is the kind of exponential world we're living in. So it, um, it becomes, let's say, almost impossible to put your head around it. It's, it's happening all together, all at once. And it's something that looks so normal that we don't see it. So, so can we speak, can about, we speak progress about progress at all? In the normative, in sense, normative of the word. sense of the word? Well, we do. We speak about it all the time. And it's the very normative sense of the word that's the problem. Since the Enlightenment, uh, since the Renaissance, really, through the Enlightenment, through the French Revolution, through the Industrial Revolution, we've all bought into this European-created uh, destiny of things will keep getting better. That's the, that's the concept of Marxism, that we're on this linear path, almost Christian in its point of view, that, that we're, we're started here and it's going to get progressively better and better and better. People who are of the left have what? Progressive politics, because they feel that the reason things aren't getting better is that they can get better if only we make them better, etc. That we're on a necessary arc in history where things will get better. I don't see that arc. I don't think history is that way. It's more about contrariness, about opposites. Um, it, it's not about creating the perfect world. That's a myth. It's the biggest enemy to social injustice, things like utopias. Um, we have to realize that to be human is to be weak, to be fragile. We have to live within the humility of those limits. Any species, even using Darwinian ideas about evolution, any species that outlives its food source is doomed to a very rough time, if not fatally, extinction. We could say that of all the people on the endangered, of all the entities on the endangered list, we humans might be at the top of that list because of the enormous impact we're having on the place that we call home. Uh -huh. So are we sort are of we committing sort of a suicide, committing in a suicide in a way? Um, 
No, it's more, um, it's more, you, I would, I hate to use this word because it's so sanitized, but it's more the accident. Um, we don't know what we're doing. We have no idea when a child is born at birth, the world is born into the child's mind at birth. We become the places that we grow up in. We become the environment that we live in. We are sensate beings. We become what we see, hear, touch, smell. We become the ethers around us. We live in a technological environment, the orb, let's call it, that is so present yet unseen that it makes that which is small dangerous. It used to be in the 60s, small is beautiful. Now small runs everything. It's microchips, it's microwaves, things that are beyond our senses to observe. So yes, we become the environment we live in. And, um, or we, I forgot your question, but is it, how, how did you ask it? What did you say? If we're committing a suicide. If we're committing a suicide. Oh, suicide. And I said, no, it's the accident. So let me go back to that. There are more people that die in vehicular accidents and in war, okay? It's the price we pay, again, for the pursuit of our happiness. The accident is something that, while not intentional, it's because it's a human thing, we call it an accident. It, we know from studies that it's going to happen regularly and consistently, no matter how much we teach safety, because of the sheer numbers and the probabilities that exist with those numbers, cars moving at that rate of speed, etc. So the accident is endemic to our way of life. And so what I'm saying is we now experience earthquakes, etc. We might be experiencing skyquakes. We have no idea. My own feeling, dare I say it, is that we're going to experience phenomena that are unrecorded in human history because of how much we're playing with the environment we live in. Mm -hmm. to be a big accident. But let me take your car example, for example. Uh, don't we know that we can improve things over time? For example, when we invented the seat belts, we know that we diminished fatality by a very substantial percentage. When we yeah, but we still have like 50,000 people a year dying in car crashes in this country. Yeah, but percentage-wise, that's much smaller with respect to the number of cars being driven today than, let's say, 50 years ago. Well, that, and please, if I may interrupt, I don't question, because this is a technological world, it's a catch-22. The only way it's going to be made safer is through technology. So it's a catch-22. Uh, we're on for the ride. They have to make it as safe as possible. Let me, let me predicate it as possible as we have seat belts now for the car and airbags, which are not proven to be as effective as they thought they might be. Um, we also are like, we have the seat belt around the planet right now. What's gonna happen if we have an accident with the planet, which we seem to already have had? From my point of view, the accident has already occurred. The tipping point has already arrived. You, you've mentioned uh, progress, you've mentioned communism. Where does capitalism fit in the picture in all of that? You've mentioned even the words utopia. Uh, there are a number of people from the so-called progressive left that you mentioned who would say that most of the ailments that we are seeing today are the result of uh, the Capitalism. Exactly. Right? And as Karl Marx said, uh, one of the main reasons for that is the fact that we require endless exponential growth in order to sustain it. Okay, let me go to something very fundamental that Karl Marx said. I'm going to paraphrase. He basically asked this question. I'll put my own words to it. Is it the content of your mind that determines your behavior? Or is it your behavior that determines the content of your mind? And I will attempt to answer that question. For nine out of eight of us, it's our behavior that determines the content of our mind. Let me explain. We think our mind, our cerebellum, is our biggest achievement. Who am I to argue? But I know that we're much more complex 
than separating the mind from the completeness of who we are. We become what we do. We become what we see, as I said earlier. We become the routine that we're part of. Let's take the Dalai Lama, different than Karl Marx. After giving a lecture in Albuquerque, the beginning of the 90s, someone got up right away with their first question and said, Your Holiness, what is the most important thing I can pay attention to? Without even giving it a thought, he said, routine, next question. He's saying what Marx says, that that we become what we do. So whether it's capitalism or socialism, the industrialization of the planet tied to now the miracle of technology is literally eating up the planet for greed, for profit, for beyond greed and profit, for the infinite capacity that the tool, the technology, which now has a life of its own. We could get rid of the, all the boards on corporations today. They'll be replaced by other boards. You could do that forever. It's the technology that's driving those corporations. It's, it has a life of its own. Let's take, let's take the NSA. Let's take the debacle that's happening with um, global surveillance. For computers dealing with seven billion items is nothing. It's like child's play. It's the capacity of the technology to do that that is creating the opportunity to do that. Let's take social media. All the stuff we put on there about ourselves is just as voraciously grabbed up by commodity advertisers as the government grabs all of this uh, surveillance data, something that can go into a machine, be reanalyzed and used for the profit of those or for the protection of us in the case of NSA. Um, it's the technology that's driving it. I have no I have no question in my mind that that connected to what we now call capitalism is on steroids. It's um, let's take the Second World War at the end of 1943 to 45, a million people a month died. Most of those were not soldiers. Those were civilians. They died because not because the war was going on, not because of just human decisions, but because of the technology we have now to kill. So all bets are off that we have we have technology to kill the planet, to kill our species, to kill everything alive on the planet today. Don't we have the technology to cure it, though, also? It's the very same technology. Most Precisely. of the technology that we live with comes out of military R&D research because that's where the mother load of funding is. To do something like the Manhattan Project is not a human endeavor. It's an endeavor of mass man. To go to the moon is an endeavor of mass man. To build a dam the size of the one that has just been built in China, four times the size of the Hoover Dam. To build the Hoover Dam, I could keep going. These are not human activities. These are the activities of enormous capital that come from nation states that employ giant corporations to do their bidding. Uh -huh. So yes, those yes. So we they could find a cure for this, or they could work on that. I don't trust the source. I think more than the product they put out, it's the process by which we use the product. We become the process. So you agree it is a product. systemic issue. It's what? It's a systemic issue then. Yes, it is. It's it's it it is rooted in the very structure in the aesthetic of the way we live, mm -hmm. of the sensations that have caused us, the emotions that come from those and the perceptions of life. It's an aesthetic of mass man. Yeah, speaking of the aesthetic, I watched an interview with you where you said that your first movie was about the awesome beauty, the terrible beauty and the beauty of the beast. And of course, you were referring to that technology. Uh, now, let me ask you this though. What about the alternative uh, sort of 
attempts to address those systemic issues, whether it's communism or most recently we have what's called the Zeitgeist. I don't think it's communism. If I may stop you, I don't think communism had any issue with that. Communism was more about who controlled the means of production, who were the rulers, not uh, the system that was being ruled. Mm-hmm. What, what? So in that sense, it's on the same bandwagon. It just has a different procedural technology. Mm-hmm. What about rather than corporate? What about more recent uh, uh, suggestions or proposals, such as the Zeitgeist movement or the so-called the Venus Project by Jacques Fresco? I'm not aware of them. You're not aware. Well, I'm they're, sorry, I'm they're kind of a cocoon. They're proposing what they call the resource-based economy, uh, and actually, it's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit sophisticated to explain. Well, let, let, me, let me say this. I am aware in a very generalized way that some elements of, or some powerful elements in the environmental movement are moving towards the management of Earth resources by high tech. I'm mm-hmm. aware of that. Yeah. I'm, I am distrustful of that. That's keep that's so that we can keep the high tech order together, so that we can keep a mass society, one people, one way, one planet, the blue planet together. To do this more reasonably, there's a different approach. Let's call it a bioregional approach, something that is well written about, something that is in not in adverse relationships to the resources that we have and spreading them all over the planet, but that has those that live in that bioregion collaborative with those resources and for that region. So those are systemic or, or, or structural changes that would indicate a wholly different pattern of the way we live. Mm-hmm. What about uh, people like Kevin Kelly, who in his book, What Technology Wants, says that the problem with technol- the problems with technology generally can and should be addressed by better, smarter, more technology, not less technology? Well, that's a being, how can I disagree with that? Uh, that? That is an imperative. That's like a, um, you know, it's a no-brainer. Of course, technology to get better has to be dealing with better technology. That's the thing. It keeps getting better and better. We're now, I don't, I'm sure someone in your audience will know this better than I, but a human generation, let's say, is around 25 years or so. I would imagine a technological generation is about a year and a half or so. Yeah, and that period is shrinking. Some people say 13 months now. 13 months, so... We are, all I'm saying is that the, the, whole, the whole thing driving this is speed, it's quickness, because time, quote, is money. That whole corporate notion that, that we're all on this, as it were, treadmill of accelerated time. And it's hard when you're moving that fast to get any view of anything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Godfrey, time is advancing here, so let me quickly move on to your latest movie uh, called Visitors. Um, And as I said, I recommend that people watch it. I absolutely loved it. Um, And of course, it made a huge difference that we had the pleasure of uh, hearing the score, the music score by Philip Glass performed live during the premiere at the Toronto (laughs) Film Festival, which was fascinating. But let me ask you this. Visitors exhibits that interesting dichotomy. On the one hand, it's a 4K film, which is to say it's the latest technology that you have embraced to shoot it. On the other hand, you've chosen to do it in black and white. Why? Um, First of all, black and white, this is just a point of view, for me is more emotional. when, When an image is in color, it contemporizes the image. Now, that's on a conceptual level. It makes it more contemporary. Black and white removes it from the burden of precise representation and puts it more in a meta language of representation. Precognitively, when color is what is presented in the in the frame, then the eye, 
before thinking about it, is drawn to the different aspects of color. It starts to, and it puts it all together. So the eye is drawn. All the images in this film of people are in what's called a black ground. There is only the people in black and white, and there is nothing behind them but black. Black in a... Um, in a two-dimensional medium, and this is important for this film, gives the illusion of more dimensionality, which means more presence of the subject. And since the subject of visitors is the audience watching the film, as much intensity to the, uh, to the focus, to the resolution, and to the sharpness of the image in a poetic sense is given. So it's about the perfected image to make it as, dare I use the word, beautiful, but let me define it a bit. The origin in Greek of the word beautiful is kalos, but the origin of kalos is kalio, which means to provoke. Art should provoke. It can provoke through the aesthetics of its form. Okay, so we got the black and white part but why do it in 4k then why not just do it in 35 or 75 millimeter film or whatever like well first of all the subject that i shot um i was looking in all cases for non-self-conscious behavior using only extras um so i had nobody act in the film to shoot a gorilla i'll go back to that to shoot a gorilla for example took weeks you can't direct the gorilla to look into the camera the gorilla is going to look where she wants to look. So you have to keep cameras rolling for a long time. With all the subjects that we're doing, gaming or watching TV or posing for a, a very long take on a portrait, those or if I'd have done it in 35 or if I even considered 65, it would have been prohibitively expensive. So that's why I chose to use a digital medium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, I felt that the red camera gave me what I call super blacks. And that, as a filmmaker, I'm interested in. It gives, again, the illusion of depth in a two-dimensional medium, a flat medium. So you embrace the red camera and 4K, which are the very cutting edge of film technology, perhaps. And, and yet, do you I not find... I embraced it in 5K. The shot, we use mainly the epic camera. Not all, not all. we use... There's standard 3K, 4K. We even had a 2K high speed, but the 5K was the camera. And that's to bring palpable resolution to the subject. It gives more, if I may use the word, organic matter on the screen. Mm -hmm. it, has more, it, it has more of an affecting uh, uh, possibility for the audience because it's a visual medium. And do you not find that funny dichotomy that on the one hand you spend considerable amount pr most of your time criticizing technology on the other hand you're embracing it to, to no, do not, so no uh, let me say this um, the embrace that I make of it is the embrace freely indeed free indeed of a contradiction if I want to be a if I want to commune with other people and I want to do that in the, in the theater or the home of that other person, then I have to speak the language of that person. And the language of, of today is technology. So not being able to have immaculate conceptions for myself or for what I'm doing, I have to embrace that which I'm questioning. If you want to look at it strategically, frequently if you fight a forest fire, you have to build a fire in order to line it up. So I'm not, um, I have no apologies for that. I'm embracing freely this contradiction and I, I do so knowingly. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So let me ask you this. There were, what, 30 years between Koyanis uh, Katsi and visitors? Yes. How have your ideas evolved since then, or have they? <laughs> Good question. Let me put it this way. When I was a child, 
We didn't go to the store and buy butter. We churned butter in my mother's kitchen, okay? I used to not like that job because it meant turning it for a long time, okay? So I'm going to use that as a metaphor, as it were. Koyanis Katsi, I had turned that butter maybe 10,000 times, okay? To turn it, turn it. Now I've turned that 100,000 times. So it, while the subject hasn't changed, uh, my involvement in it is deeper and deeper. I would characterize it, characterize it this way. It, it is a commitment that I have to the subject matter that motivates me to use this medium or this form. And my commitment is not with grace and gratuity, but like to, and I'll use the word, like to a progressive insane asylum. It gets progressively more, more focused the older I become. Mm-hmm. And uh, because there's a universe to understand. It's not like a simple subject. It's one that has captivated me and has a, you know, an, un, an unnameable amount of parts. Mm-hmm. Godfrey, let me ask you this. During uh, the, the post-premier party, I had a discussion with uh, our friend uh, Tom Lowe, who is, of course, the reason why I was so fortunate to be able to attend the premiere. And I was telling him, I bet you, Tom, Godfrey knows all about exponential growth and the technological singularity and all of that. Uh, And, of course, after that, I kind of uh, quickly learned from you that you have been keeping up to date with those. So let me ask you, what's your take on the technological singularity? Um. I think there's, I could get it wrong again, your audience will know better, something similar to that is the Simi Valley. Um, these are moments at which there will be a crossover so that the machine has what we call the equivalent of human intelligence, where the machine is volitional, where the machine has destiny, where the, where the machine can determine its own set of logarithms. <clears throat> Having said that, the machine will be working on mathematics. I think that point has already come. I don't think it's a question of when. It's not even a question of if. I think it's already happened. And I use myself, I use you, and everybody looking at this program and those countless of other people on the planet that we're all becoming the planet we live on. The planet we live on is a technological environment. This idea of singularity has to do with becoming at one as a human with technology. You could even call it a cyborg state. Uh To me, we are in the cyborg state, not approaching it. We are in it. We will only get deeper in it the further we go, but we are well into it. It's not the cyborg state of science fiction. It's the cyborg state of the fiction of science. We have in our bodies trace elements that didn't exist on the planet a mere hundred years ago. What we eat, we become. Our food is full of it. Our air we breathe. The electromagnetic sphere, the microwaves, all of these things, we're playing with dynamics, the consequence of which we have no idea. It's beyond, we're, we're doing anything that the gods could have done in the past, we are claiming to be able to do now. Um, so technology is miracle technology. It's miracle micro it, it's, it's anything like it says in the epistles or the gospels that, about heaven. I mean, it's so religious, it, it's worth quoting, that the eye has not seen nor the ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the glories that God has prepared for those that love him. We could say the same thing about technology. It's not entered into our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard. It's beyond our imagination what we're already into because we've already become it. We're like that frog in the pot of water when it was cold. It's been heating up. 
were already inflamed with the ism of technology. Scratch a surface and it's within us all. We're like the aliens on this planet. That's why we keep seeing, you know, talking about alien abductions and seeing spacecraft. And I want to tell you in the Middle Ages, which I said earlier, I grew up in, people saw flying angels, people were levitating. We see what's in our imagination. We see the culture, the water that we swim in. We're seeing all of these alien signs because we are ourselves aliens to the world that we are, our energy has come from. Godfrey, we only have a couple of minutes left here, so I'll, I'll see if I can ask you the last three or four questions here. Uh, what's your greatest fear? Wow, I haven't thought about it. Um, <laughs> I haven't thought about it. I guess fear itself, I mean, not to be redundant. Um, I think to be possessed by fear would be my greatest fear. But You're to not be, one. To be, to be possessed, I have in earlier poems, of, of in earlier uh, period of my life, been obsessed with fear to the point of having psychosomatic illnesses, watching my hands 50 times a day till, till they bled. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, that would be a, a, a terrible state to be in. So to uh, to not live in a state of fear is a blessing, a grace. I take no credit for it. I should be probably institutionalized if it was my credit, but I feel like I'm protected by a grace like all of us do. Call it whatever you want, the vivid unknown, the voice within, the guardian angel, whatever you wish to call it. I feel blessed that way. Do you fear technology or our technological future? Um, I guess I, I, my not fear. My feeling is one of intense, um, I guess, sorrow mm-hmm. and um, horror yeah. at at the at the suffering that is going on on the planet as you and I speak. From, I mean it. I mean, if I think about it, it would destroy me even to see in my little community 20,000 feral cats um, reading in the paper today. We're putting chickens on the food line so fast that many end up dying by going into boiling water, absolutely conscious. I mean, and it goes on, et cetera, the suffering of people that are driven from their homes, the animals that have no land, the fish that are being poisoned with toxicities. I mean, um, you could try to look at the bright side of things, but those are things for our own pleasure. When you understand that we're all connected in some vast way through our differences, um, then you can start to feel the suffering of the planet itself. It's horrendous. It's unsayable. It's unspeakable. Let's look at the other part of the coin, though. What is your biggest dream? Perhaps the reason that keeps you going? Well, I have the dream of life. I'm living it. I'm uh, possessed by it. I'm fortunate to be able to breathe and talk to you. Um, That's what I value the most, I guess, um, to be able to create, to be able to have conversation. I recently heard a Rumi poem. He talked about the three approaches to the divine, to God. And he said the first approach is prayer, second approach is meditation, and the big approach is conversation. (laughs) My biggest hope is that we can, we've been praying all this time. We've been in conversation. We are a chip off the old block, as it were, in that in the beginning was the word, and that word was made flesh. To me, we are the word. That's who we are. It is our brilliance. It is our flaw. Where can people find more about you and your work, Godfrey? I hope nowhere. I don't know where. There's stuff on the net. I don't use the net myself, so 
I only know it secondhand through others. Occasionally I'll see something, but I really don't know. Uh, everything about anybody is knowable today. Um, so all you got to do is go on the net, I'm sure. Um, I mean, our lives are open by virtue of the technology that um, is present with all of us. Well, you're a tough person to get in touch with in some ways and, and do research on. I can say that myself. Oh, great. But uh, let, me, let me finish our interview here with this final question, which is we've been talking here for an hour, actually more than an hour. But if there's a single message, the most important thing that you would like our viewers to take away from our conversation today what would you like that to be? Because I know others have said it so much better than I, I'm going to give you a quote from someone. For those of you that have already heard this quote, it'll only, it can't hurt to hear it again because of the profundity that it houses. So with that introduction, let me try to quote Goethe. Goethe says, whatever you can do, or dream you can do, do it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. What he's, act, what he's saying is act as if you know what you're doing. He's saying what the Zen statement says, leap and the net shall appear. To trust yourself, to know that life is much more fulfilling when you're non-self-conscious when your consciousness is, is about the relationships, the world that you live in, the others that are around you, all those beautiful creatures that are here, as well as the people that we love and deal with every day. This is what it's about. Godfrey Radio, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Yeah.